You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Just to recap real quick, the point of these mini episodes is to really, I need a better phrase, but dig in deeper on the Interning 101 book. And to do that and to give you all some context, I've been going through my career background and backstory, which is something I speak a lot about at colleges, universities, even high schools. Um, and at industry conferences and, and things like that. So maybe this will be the last time I, uh, I tell all these stories because we'll have it captured and then I can talk about newer things. But in the meantime, uh, we left off with me tour managing the Dresden Dolls in college, right out of college. And I talked about how that led to my first full-time job after graduating from Northeastern University in 2005. And that, again, that was a, it was a combination of two, I guess, technically part-time jobs because I would work at Madison House when they had an office in New York um, and they were managing the Dresden Dolls at that time. And then uh, otherwise I would be out tour managing the Dresden Dolls and that was perfect. So I was basically working on the band all the time whether I was on the road and then when I was off the road, I would work at Madison House in New York. And I was getting to the point after three years of tour managing where, frankly, I wasn't really challenged. I don't know if I realized that at the time, but I had gone from, you know, like crying on the first week of the Nine Inch Nails tour um, in 2005 or whatever to knowing some of these venues and hotels better than my neighborhood in in Brooklyn. So I was contemplating coming off the road and it ended up just being perfect, perfect timing. I remember the dolls came through and were playing New York, which they've done a million times, but I want to say this was on the Panic at the Disco tour, maybe, although that was in the summer. Either way, I went into the Madison House office, Mike Luba and Kevin Morris cracked beers in the middle of the day, which was a relatively rare occurrence and said, you know, Emily, Emily, like touring sucks. And they were basically trying to sell me on coming off the road and working at Madison House full time. I didn't need beers or convincing. Um, It was really, really just like the perfect, perfect timing for everyone. And uh, I think it was, in fact, I know it was fueled by Kevin Morris uh, needing help with some of his artists. So came off the road. And the first artist I was basically assigned, which I'll be open about because I think there's a lot, because I love these artists now. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from this, especially in music and entertainment. So came off the road and Kevin gave me Angelique Kijo to work on and Taj Mahal. And in my, you know, post-college indie brain world, I was like, I don't love these artists how could I work on them? Which, you know, as I say that, I do understand because this industry can be brutal. We'll talk about balance, but especially at a young age, it can be very 24-7, 365. So 
you do have to have that passion and love for it. But something I see working with students and young people now is, you know, we, you know, we always put the art first in music, but you have to be almost as passionate about the work. And I don't mean like business or like the industry or how you think you should be. The example that comes to mind is uh, one of my co-managers now on Fox Stevenson um, is a guy named Han Kim that I've known since he was in grad school at NYU. And one morning he was like, yeah, got up early, had some coffee, got all my emails done to Europe. And I was like, Han is a lifer when it comes to the music industry. Now, he's also a huge, huge music fan. And at EDM shows, we'll be like dancing harder than anyone in the audience, which I may or may not recommend um, because you want to keep some professionalism. But for now, go Han. But I could see that he had like gotten that high from, you know, completing his work and supporting his artists and was in it for the right reasons. Um, I don't want to say the right reasons, but just you know, in it for reasons that will maintain a career for the long haul. Yeah. So I I was, I was concerned that I didn't love Anjali Kijo and, and Taj Mahal. And in hindsight, that was absolutely ridiculous because Angelique in particular was opening for Josh Groban. And although he's pretty funny on social media and stuff, uh, maybe that sounds kind of lame, but there's so much you can learn from working on an arena tour, not to mention, um, I, again, I realize most of this in hindsight, but I definitely hooked up, you know, different Dresden Dolls crew members with, you know, gigs on that tour. And um, that was just because we needed a sound person and a problem solved or whatever. But, you know, in hindsight, that's that's really how you build a great network is, is you get people jobs. But anyway, I learned a ton working with Angelique, who's, you know, just an incredible, incredible artist that I encourage you to check out. And has won Grammys and is just a force of nature. And Taj, you know, without getting too into it, besides being a total legend, you know, something I learned on that is, again, I have to respect some privacy, but um, Kevin co-managed Taj with Taj's ex-wife. So I had to learn the nuances of working with a family member who was also a part of the business, which is actually really common in the industry. And I think that was one of my first times really experiencing that. Not to mention that, like I said, Taj is just a blues legend and it was an honor to work with him. And this was all something where I was like, oh, I don't love them. So I was working full time at Madison House. Uh, my dreams came true further when uh, my best friend, Laura Keating, became our office manager. That was also like perfect timing. I think she was just coming into the office to help me out. She may have been staying with me or something. And then the office manager quit. Side note, that office manager, I don't I doubt she went directly from Madison House to Headspace, but um one of my current sports clients, Anthony Irvin, wanted to connect with someone at Headspace. It turned out that initial office manager worked there 10 years later. She helped us do this deal uh, with Headspace and USA Swimming. So you can never predict how people are going to help you and, and vice versa, that the office manager from a jam band management company 10 years ago would be working at a meditation app 10 years in the future and helping um, the fastest human in water. So you never know. I love my life now, but that was the best. Uh, I would work my butt off all day. I, I worked with amazing, amazing colleagues at Madison House. 
And then Laura and I would run around to shows all night. It was one reason why I lived in New York City. And you don't have to be connected in the industry to to know this stuff. But um, we also knew like set times and we would hit like three shows a night. And, you know, for those of you that don't know New York or you haven't been here, um, as far as the music industry goes, that's like pretty contained. So I can walk around. I know it's evolved. (laughs) That's, That's a nice way of putting it. But I can walk around the Lower East Side, that, you know, that part of kind of lower Manhattan or my neighborhood of Williamsburg and run into tons of industry people. Obviously, Manhattan is huge. New York City is huge. But, you know, kind of where the clubs are and where different music companies are, are all in the same vicinity. So when it's nice out, it's really, really common to run into people, which is very fun. I I just went to a progressive political rally this weekend in my neighborhood and I saw a ton of people I know. And maybe that sounds normal, but the people I saw don't like live in my building. They're just colleagues and friends that I've met over the years. So New York is a smaller world than you think. So yeah, loved it. Just had the best time and was, you know, this was like mid to late 2000s, 2006, 2007. And I was super grateful that I didn't go down the path of working at a traditional label because people were getting laid off left and right. Instead, I worked at this great management company, um, was learning from incredible managers like Mike Luba, Kevin Morris, Christine Stouter, Bart Dahl, and then Laura Keating and I would run around and do our thing. So loved my life. Did wonder at one point, like, what will be next or when will this end? I think the when will this end was like, you know, I'm at the office at 10 o'clock at night. But to be fair, I, like I said, I went to a lot of shows, so I would roll in at like 11. But still that that's, you know, uh, an 11 hour day and it's a little insane. So one day Mike Luba called a meeting, which I don't think he ever did in the years that I worked there. He's a creative genius, but it's not like we did regular stand up meetings by any means. And sat our small team down and said, I'm moving to Miami to work for my mentor, Michael Cole, who's the Rolling Stones longtime concert promoter. And um, the first artist we'll be working with is Madonna. And Kevin said that he was selling his share of the company to fill in the blank of the most famous manager in the music industry. Um, I'll keep that mysterious because he, he, he ended up joining Red Light and that's where um, him and Christine Stouter are to this day you know, still managing artists we worked on like drive-by truckers, but also discovered and works with Alabama shakes and they're doing their thing. But anyway, Kevin was obviously leaving. Luba was moving to Miami of all places. I broke the silence and said, does this mean I have to get a car? Which maybe sounds weird to people outside of New York, but if one manager was going to LA and the other boss was going to Miami um, and we didn't really know, you know, what was going to happen. But at the same time, you know, while I was toiling away at the management company, this was the era where we were instant messaging zip files back and forth of albums. And uh, so that was kind of where we were at the tech, as far as technology goes in the music business. And I had seen simultaneously, I had seen a fan come up to Amanda Palmer at a show at the Middle East when I was doing merch, the Middle East in Boston, and said, gave her a check for like, two or $300 and said, I just want to support you and support your art. And I thought about the zip files we were trading. And I thought about that. And Amanda was recording her debut solo album, which was produced by Ben Folds. I was constantly flying down to Nashville, 
while they were doing that, that was a great experience. And I thought, you know, the label will never let us, but why can't we just put up a zip file for donation, kind of like a museum. And so I wrote a business plan called Suggested Donation Online Distribution because I thought, you know, in the iTunes era, why are we limiting ourselves to $9.99 if there are fans who want to give more? And so I wrote this plan, um, gave it to both of my bosses. One said, this is brilliant. We have to get on a call. The other said, um, this will never work. Go back to working on your bands. And I continued to work on it, you know, in my spare time with a developer, again, even though I knew the label wouldn't let us do it. And a few months later, Radiohead came out with In Rainbows. And if you're old enough to remember, I remember crawling into my loft bed in Brooklyn, looking at my Blackberry to date things further. And no matter what you think of Bob Lefsatz, he had sent an email that said, you know, click this or like, you have to click, you know, it wasn't spam. And I did, and it was Radiohead's In Rainbows album where they just put it up um, for any price. I, I, I can't remember. Maybe there was a $5 minimum or something. I really don't remember. But Boss, who said this will never work, go back to working on your bands. Radiohead was his favorite band. Uh, so I walked into the office next day, the next day and he said, Radiohead stole your idea. Like that was his way of knowledge, acknowledging, okay, maybe it was a pretty good idea. So tying this all together... Um, Luba was going to work for a new division of Live Nation, like a half a billion dollar division of Live Nation, head up by Michael Cole. If Michael Cole wants us in Miami, that's where we're going to be. Um, Luba was essentially the A&R person. It was, it, was the, it was during the time when Live Nation was doing what we called all rights deals, but the media would call, call 360 deals. So Madonna was the first signee, shortly followed by Jay-Z, U2. And legendary producer Bob Ezrin was gonna was gonna head up the recording division. And I don't know how this came up if Bob said he was looking for a young person or or what, but Luba had passed along my name your own price business model to Bob Ezrin. And Bob said, I want to meet this person. So I went to lunch with Bob. I remember he knew I lived in Brooklyn, so he oh, it's a really famous Brooklyn re restaurant he chose, but it would have been really far away from Williamsburg. He's like, it was that or like some steakhouse in Midtown. So uh, went to the steakhouse, was really, was strict vegetarian, um, not a fan of fish at all, but got some salmon. Just I would totally get what vegan food in front of Bob at this point, but um, I don't know, just kind of talking you through that, just kind of chipped away at... <laughs> salmon that I was not into and and like applied all the things that I'm teaching you into that you know like that was an interview even though I didn't like bring my resume or whatever got there early found some steps to kind of like hide and close my eyes and, and practice the things that I thought he might ask and yeah when Bob when when you're 24 years old and Bob Ezrin tells you you're moving to Miami that means you're moving to Miami so I accepted this job, didn't really know what I was getting into, or I guess I did because I thought going into it, this is, this is either going to be the biggest thing ever or a big disaster. But if it's a disaster, it'll be a great learning experience for me. And I kind of viewed it as grad school. So picked up my stuff, you know, no kids, no dog, nothing. Um, moved to Miami, naively was like, it's a city. And that's not a knock on Miami. It's that with perspective, New York is its own country. Um, I've been to every major city in the US and, and many 
I, I won't comment on other cities in the world, but um, yeah, New York is like a really, really special place. And so picked up, moved down there. And, you know, I was used to like managing bands. That was a big deal. I left the Dresden Dolls. I left the Fiery Furnaces. I left all these great artists I was working on every single day. And Live Nation artists had signed Madonna, but that deal wasn't going to kick in for like two years. So everybody was just trying to sign the biggest artists in the world, which was really exciting. But I had like nothing to do the first few weeks. So that was a little weird and totally different from working at a super busy management company. But what, what was freaking awesome and kind of a dream is as the industry was shifting And if I'm going to generalize, like labels understandably are freaking out, artists don't know what to do. The minds that they had recruited at this Live Nation artist thing were really exciting and really forward thinking. And it was it was like a think tank, whether they realized it or not. I would be I was given kind of just like I was just given these awesome like projects and hypothetical things to work on. And what do you think about this distribution model? And but, you know, I'd also be asked crazy things by uh, our recording department was very small. Um, my best friend there's name is John Rasso. He, in fact, after this, I'm going to invite him to be a guest because he does a great job with interns. And I remember Rasso coming up to me one day and saying, because, again, we're trying to sign every big artist in the world. So I, I have to respect confidentiality. I guess I guess I'll stop that story. But he said, what do you think of a big grunge band that's not Nirvana? Um, and he said, what do you think X bands publishing will be worth over the next 10 years? And I said, you want me to estimate how much songs will be worth that were never written. Um, that's not the best example of like a think tank as far as new business models, but just an example of kind of like some of the tasks we were given. So anyway, went from this super busy management company to basically doing like complex music industry homework and, they signed an artist named Zach Brown. And they said, well, we just did this million dollar deal as opposed to the 150 million Madonna deal. And Emily knows how to develop artists and use the internet. So let's give Zach Brown to her. I knew nothing about country music, although it was made very clear to me from day one that we weren't approaching Zach as a country artist per se. Again, I want to be respectful to, to some privacy things with regard to kind of what we were going after. But uh, my boss, one of my other bosses, Bill Hines said, you know, put together a campaign for him. I want to involve brands. I want to involve fans. I want to involve social media. So I did all that. And we put together a really cool campaign. Also, when I first started working with Zach, I said, what are his ticket counts in Nashville? Because he was a country artist or not. And the answer was 40 for zero. And obviously, since then, Zach plays arenas. He's won Best New Artist at the Grammys. Um, He was just a force. And he's also done such an amazing job with his branding in a, in a totally genuine way, because that's when branding is effective. The best I'm laughing, because again, I don't want to diss Miami too much. But the best meal I had was Zach cooking for our team. I mean, he he was just amazing. So anyway, um, worked on Zach Brown. Also, like when I was down there, I thought, this is a half a billion dollar division of Live Nation and we're not going to have income for two years. Like I don't have an MBA, but I don't think this is sustainable. So uh, I was working my butt off on Zach. He was on the road. He was doing a million things. And John Rasso, who I mentioned, said to me, hey, there's some like rumors in the Wall Street Journal that Michael Cole isn't getting along with Michael Rapino, who was the CEO of Live Nation. 
And John, which we'll talk about when we have him on the show, joked, but was serious. Like he, he's worked at a million labels and he, he always said he would get assigned the album after the hit. <laughs> so he's been laid off a lot, um, which is not his fault. The guy is a music industry genius. Yeah, he, he saw the writing on the wall. I didn't. I was like, whatever, I'm busy you know, working on Zach. So it really, it must've been a few weeks later, all the bosses had flown to LA to see Zach play at the Troubadour. I believe the Troubadour off the top of my head. And I had flown in late from New York on a Sunday night. So I slept in a little bit and Rasso called me from the office and he said, I just walked in and they handed me a severance package. And I was like, what? I was like, what do I do? And he's like, you just, again, coming from someone who'd been laid off multiple times in the music industry, you just come in and take it. And I was like, what do I wear to get laid off? And I, not that anyone cares, but I wore the outfit. I uh, wore to that steak lunch with Bob Ezra in eight months prior or a year prior or whatever. So did that, called Luba. Um, he eventually called me back. He's like, I have 73 new voicemails. What the hell is going on? I told him I'd walked in and they handed me a severance package. And uh, he was very shocked by that. But in reality, negotiations had gone south between Michael Rapino and Michael Cole. So uh, Live Nation said, fuck you. We're laying off your staff, including your family members. And just to show like what a righteous person Luba is, he was like, don't worry about your groceries. Don't worry about your rent. Um, just do right by Zach. We have an artist on the road and you have to do right by Zach. Work out of your Gmail, work out of your cell phone and, you know, I'll, I'll make sure things get taken care of. And I had mentioned that I was working on a multi-pronged initiative for Zach that involved brands in particular. Uh, Live Nation got wind of that and tried to hire me the next day, which is messed up because they laid me off the day before. So, you know, that's maybe one reason why a large corporation isn't right for me because I'm really into the left hand talking to the right. There was talk of Zach's management hiring me as a consultant. Um, Kevin Morris kindly invited me to, I, I believe he was a part of Red Light at that point. He was like, just come back. Matt Hickey offered to hire me at High Road, which was cool. But, you know, Luba and Ezra sat me down separately and they said, it's time for you to start a management company. You know all sides of this business, the indie side, the touring side, corporate, merch, and you should move back to Brooklyn and do that. There's artists. I know there's artists calling you right now wanting to know what's going on and wanting to work with you. And those guys were blocked by a huge non-compete. And they're like, you're welcome to stay with us. Uh, we're going to do big things. I don't know if they did this, but the example at the time was the Bodies exhibit um, in South America. Uh, I know it's controversial, but they did Spider-Man on Broadway. But because of this non-compete, they couldn't do solely music work. And they're like, that's not you. You know, go back to Brooklyn, start a company. If you need anything, money, whatever, we're here. And I had also just signed, re-signed a six-month lease in Miami. So I was stuck there. We did get Live Nation to cover that, but Miami is not really where I wanted to start my company. Although on this raining, freezing, it's not freezing, but on this rainy kind of gross day in New York, um, Miami is looking pretty sweet right now. So it's all good. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up this mini episode. That was my seven month version of grad school in Miami. And on the next mini episode, we will talk about launching my first management company in 2008. 
and all the great and crazy things that came out of that. So thanks so much for tuning in to mini episode four of the Interning 101 podcast. And on episode five, we will talk about uh, launching a management company. Have a great day, night, whatever, wherever you are. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to the Interning 101 podcast. I'm your host, Emily White. You can follow us anytime over on Twitter at Interning 101, as well as on our website, interning101.com. I'm on Twitter at at EMWizzle. Hit us up anytime if you have questions, comments, guest suggestions, or just want to get something off your mind. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.